Well, good morning again, everyone. Just a uh, moment of kind of personal updates. Uh, as many of you know, it's been a crazy week at the Geiger household. My wife, Susan, um, fell on Monday. She was doing some housework at home and uh, fell off of a chair, and she broke her right hand, her right wrist, and her right foot in three places. So um, she has been in a lot of pain. We've been to doctors and surgeons every day. She had one surgery on Thursday uh, to put a plate and a couple of screws in her wrist, and then we go to see another surgeon tomorrow to see what they're going to do about her foot. So uh, please do pray for her. Pray that the Lord would relieve her pain. Pray that the Lord would give the surgeon wisdom tomorrow and that... Uh, quite literally, uh, before long, she's back on her feet. Um, and thank you for the many of you who have reached out and, and asked. So, China is a country that is in the news a lot these days, but China hasn't always been the economic and the political powerhouse that it is today. As a matter of fact, it was just 50 years ago that the People's Republic of China had no diplomatic relations at all with most of the Western Hemisphere. As a matter of fact, the United States hadn't had diplomatic relations with China for about 23 years at that point, ever since the communist overthrow of the country back in 1949. At that time, uh, the, the Cold War was just underway, and uh, the United States felt like China was aligning itself with the Soviet Union and with other communist countries, and so we evidently took a hard stand. I was not around then, but we evidently took a hard stand to not have relations with them. But 50 years ago, in 1972, uh, the American president, Richard Nixon at the time, broke the ice with China. He made a state visit to the country, and he began a process which led to the establishment of U.S. diplomatic relations with the country and the opening of the country to uh, the world economy. And as politicos contemplated Nixon's visit to China, someone coined a phrase that is still, it's still around today. I know it's still around today, uh, and it still means something to some people because in a Star Trek movie, I think it was Star Trek VI, uh, back in the early, very early 2000s, uh, they used it. Does anyone know what it is? Not beam me up, Scotty. It's only Nixon could go to China. Only Nixon can go to China. And what that means essentially is that a, only a, a deeply flawed person could enter into a deeply flawed and complex situation and know what to do. And the, the situation with China at that point was deeply complex. How do you break into a, a culture that has been closed for so long on so many levels? And how do you overcome a difference in uh, world philosophies that is so profound between capitalism and, and communism? And how do you build trust and, and establish diplomatic relations? Well, uh, some people thought that um, uh, Richard Nixon, being a deeply complex and deeply flawed person, was the only person uh, that could do that. So I'll throw this out there. 
Uh, my cousin, Raymond Price, was actually Nixon's chief speechwriter uh, during both terms of Nixon's presidency. And I don't know what street cred that either earns me or loses for me, but it's out there now. And my cousin admits, so let me, let me before I go on, so my cousin was the chief speechwriter for Nixon. Susan's cousin, this, this is the exact truth, Susan's cousin is the NBA superstar Pistol Pete Maravich. So, and most of you don't know who he is either. So you can choose, those of you who know can choose which one of us you like better. But my cousin, Ray Price, admits this of Nixon, who was also a friend of his. He said, there were abuses of power and obstruction of justice and lies and deceits and criminal activity in the Nixon White House. At the same time, though, he says this. He says, millions of people who have known only the, the defeats of the Nixon presidency will live more safely because of his victories. And one of the largest victories, he says, was the improvement of U.S. relations with China. So Richard Nixon wasn't just the president at the center of the Watergate scandal. There were a lot of legitimately good things that came out of his presidency. But to sum it up, Richard Nixon was a complex and complicated leader with many facets. And Jephthah, uh, the, the man at the center of our story today, uh, is also a man who is very complicated. And while he did, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, deliver Israel from the Ammonites, he also caused a lot of death and suffering in his own family and among the people of Israel. And so we're going to look at the life and the work of Jephthah today using two of the themes of Jephthah's story to guide us. One is that Jephthah had a hard backstory. He had a hard experience growing up. And the other is that Jephthah was a very unusual judge. So the first point, Jephthah had a hard backstory. So what is the very first thing that we learn about Jephthah in chapter 11? Well, in verse 1, we read that he is a mighty warrior. But what's the next word? But. And there's a saying that nothing someone says before the word but really counts. And I'm not sure if that's exactly true in this case, Jephthah was a mighty warrior, and that was the reason why the leaders of Gilead sought him out to lead their, their army into battle. The fact that Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, though, shaped his entire life. It shaped not only how he, treated, how he was treated rather by his brothers, it probably shaped how he experienced God. And this is what I mean. Back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23, verse 2, we read that no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is one of the, the holiness laws of the Old Testament, and what it meant was that someone who was born out of wedlock, like Jephthah, couldn't go into the tabernacle for worship. He couldn't make a sacrifice. Uh, he couldn't bring a sacrifice, rather, to the altar for the forgiveness of his sins. Jephthah was an outsider from the start. He, he had no connection with God's people. He wasn't welcome uh, in the presence of the Lord. But he wasn't welcome among his brothers either, as we read in verses 2 and 3. They drive him out of their city and denied him any share in their inheritance or standing in the family. 
And we read in verse 3 that Jephthah fled from his brothers to a place called Tob, which is ironic because in Hebrew, the word Tob means good. The irony deepens when we find out that in this land called good, Jephthah falls in with a bad crowd. In Scripture, they're called worthless fellows. And it says that they collected around Jephthah and they went out with him, meaning that he became their leader. And so Jephthah essentially became the, the leader of um, a gang of, of people who went out doing the work of mercenaries. They, they were kind of a gang who went out, and my guess is for whatever they could uh, earn, whatever they could get for themselves, they, they roughed people up, they took on various tasks for, for various rulers, uh, and they just kind of lived the lives of, uh, of tough people. So that's not a great uh, backstory for Jephthah. And to, to recap it all, uh, what do we know about Jephthah? He's the product of an encounter between his father Gilead and a prostitute, which everyone knows. Because he's been born out of wedlock, Jephthah is cut off from the assembly of the Lord. His half-brothers conspire to drive him out of his home, to cut him off from his family, and to deny him his, his inheritance, and he has to go to another country to live, and there he takes up with some rough dudes and essentially becomes the leader of a gang of mercenaries. So Jephthah officially has a hard backstory. So many of the difficult things that happened to him were completely out of his control. And you might be asking yourself, why did God allow all of these hard things to happen to Jephthah? Well, it's a very difficult and a very complicated question to answer. No one besides God himself knows the right answer. But we do know this, that God is Lord over all circumstances, even over the ones that are objectively difficult and are objectively uh, undeserved or hard to bear. We know that God is good, and the Scripture says that He is working all things together for good, just like we, we sang in that song a few minutes ago, for those who are called to be His sons and daughters. Scripture tells us that there is something about going through the hard things of life that is actually meant to heal us and to make us more like Jesus. The same passage in Romans 8 that says God works all things together for good says that God delights in gradually conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus, in order that we would be the one of many children, I'm sorry, we would be one of many children who belong to God. In doing that, He makes us all members of the same family, all brothers and sisters together in His family with Jesus as our elder brother. So I don't pretend to know exactly what Jephthah's early life was like, but one thing he was denied was a family. If you trust in Jesus Christ, that's one thing you'll never lack. You already have a loving father and many brothers and sisters who are friends and fellow travelers with you through this journey of life. And if we trust that we today have been made into one family through adoption, into God's family, through the blood of Jesus Christ, then we can trust as well that Jephthah now also enjoys God's kingdom, in God's kingdom rather, the family he never knew on earth. 
We trust that God has redeemed Jephthah's earthly troubles even as he has promised to do with our own. Now, I know that many of you also have a hard backstory. Perhaps like Jephthah, you were denied the joy of a happy and stable home growing up. Maybe like Jephthah, the sins of your father or mother had real and hard consequences on you. Think about that. Jephthah's entire life was shaped not by something he had done, but by the sin of his father. Perhaps your parents were not the loving and supportive parents that they might have been. Or perhaps you never knew one or both of your parents. Perhaps your parents or caretakers were neglectful or selfish or abusive or put put burdens on you that were completely inappropriate for you to bear. Or maybe it wasn't your parents. Maybe you had great parents and great siblings, but maybe peers growing up made life difficult for you. Maybe they said that you would never be as good as they were, that you would never measure up, that there was something functionally different or wrong about you that kept you from fitting in. And maybe those words stuck and pierced your heart and wounded you, and they still wound you on a daily basis. My encouragement to you is to bring those hard things to Jesus, your elder brother who loves you and who wants you to experience without reservation the healing love and acceptance of his Father and our Father. Here's how the Lord describes his love for us in Isaiah chapter 49. He, he, he talks about himself Uh, And he says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That is how much God loves you. That even if it were possible for your mother or your father to forget who you are and to forget uh, to, to show you the love and the nurture that you were created to receive from them. God cannot forget you. He created you. And even that image of you being engraven, engraved on the palms of his hands, what does that remind you of? Every time Jesus, right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, looks at his hands and sees the scars of the nails that went through them. It's a continual reminder, a continual testimony to him that he did that for you, that he loves you. And he encourages us to look at him and remember that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. My friends, if you are someone who is deeply wounded by things that have happened to you in the past, I encourage you to bring those wounds, to bring your broken heart to Jesus. He's the only one who is able to truly heal those wounds and give you the hope and the identity that you need in order to walk through life. And bringing those things to Jesus, on the one hand, is the easiest thing in the world to do because we know that God is loving and trustworthy, but on the other hand, it is the hardest thing to do because we don't want to acknowledge our brokenness. Jephthah didn't want to acknowledge his brokenness. He ran from it. 
I, don't, I, I cannot stand in judgment of what Jephthah did, but he took up with these worthless fellows as a way to, I'm, I'm surmising, as a way to create his own identity, as a way to create a new family, as a way to create an identity as someone who was powerful and couldn't be hurt. We do that so frequently. We create our own uh, reputations as mighty warriors or mighty workers or mighty parents. We do it in, in, in a whole bunch of different ways because we don't want to be found weak. And yet, brothers and sisters, the only way that we can experience healing is to, to acknowledge our need and to come to the only person who is able to fill it. The only way that we can be healed is to see the wounds in our hearts, to acknowledge the pain that they create, and to go to the one who is able to heal us. And how do you do that? You do that by just being silent, closing your eyes, going to the Lord in prayer and saying, Lord, my heart hurts. My mind is confused. I'm, I'm all out of tricks. I need you to intervene. I need you to help me. I need you to show me your love. I need you to make me feel loved and forgiven. If we do that, it's a process, but if we do that, we will find hope and we'll find the rest that our souls need. The second point, Jephthah was an unusual judge. So up to this point in Jephthah's story, it's unclear how and why he would serve as a judge over Israel. He doesn't seem like an ideal candidate. He's a criminal. But it's at this point in the story in verse 4 that the Ammonites start a war with Israel. And that's the impetus for Jephthah to serve as judge. Now, who are the Ammonites? The Ammonites are people who live in the land uh, that surrounded the, the region of Gilead. And um, I should have thought to, uh, to put a map of the area up on the screen, but if you remember how Israel came into the promised land, they came in from the east to the west, and there were three tribes that received land on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and the other nine tribes, uh, or eight tribes, because the Levites didn't have uh, an inheritance, the other eight tribes received their land on the western side of the Jordan River. And so the Ammonites were descendants of uh, the Amorites who lived on the eastern side of the river. And one of the things that uh, keeps happening throughout the book of Judges, one of the things that we're reminded of is that sin has consequences, disobedience has consequences, and in the first couple chapters of Judges, we're reminded over and over and over again that Israel sinned because they were disobedient to the Lord and they didn't drive out all of the people who lived in the land. Do you remember why God said that would be a bad idea to not drive those people out? God told them, if you don't drive these people out, they're going to become a snare to you, and their gods are going to become a snare to you. And what, what's a snare? It's, it's a trap that is hidden, and once you're in it, you're incapacitated. You, you can't get out. 
And so what happened was because Israel did not drive out the Ammonites or, or their ancestors who lived in the land, the, the, the people who lived there and worshipped other gods intermixed with the people of Israel. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea to the people of Israel at the time. They said, why should we get rid of these people? They're, not, they're essentially nice people. They can do things for us. They can help us. They can show us, you know, where the best coffee is. They can, uh, you know, they, they can do work for us. Whatever, whatever the rationale was, Israel didn't drive them out. They disobeyed God. And sure enough, what God told them would happen, happened. And, and the people of Israel not only began to uh, worship the, the gods of the Ammonites, but then the Ammonites just came in and occupied Israel and made life very, very difficult for the people of Israel. Israel turned out to be the captive people, and the Ammonites were the ones who were terrorizing them and, and running the show. And so at this point, the Ammonites decide that they're going to uh, attack Israel uh, in order to subdue them and, and maybe drive them out. Um, but this is actually, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not a new issue. It's something that Israel had been dealing with for a very, very, very long time. It just came to a head. And so Jephthah was one of the more unusual judges, not only because of what uh, we know about his backstory, but for three other reasons that are revealed in verses 4 through 11. The first reason that we read about in verses 5 and 6 is that the elders of Gilead come to Jephthah and try to recruit him to be their judge. Why is, why is that weird? Doesn't every uh, you know, good organization go out and do... Uh, recruitment efforts to try to find the best leader? Well, that's not the way the judges worked because every other judge in the book of Judges up to this point was not recruited by people. They were raised up by God. If you go back and look at the very first judges, Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and, and, and on down the list, it all says that the Lord raised them up or they arose to judge the people of Israel. But in this case... In the case of Jephthah, it's the elders of Gilead who approach him. Now, as an aside, do you realize who the elders of Gilead are? They're Jephthah's brothers. His own brothers. And I think that's why Jephthah challenges them in verse 7 with the words, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? So the men, the very men who said, you are worthless, you have no part in this family, you have no part in this land, you're not one of us, you're not even uh, an Israelite, they're now coming to him with their tails between their legs and saying, we're in over our heads. You're a bad dude and we need you to come bring that bad dudeness uh, and, and help us with it. Now, there's no indication that the elders of Gilead sought the Lord's will about this or that they prayed about the decision. It seems as though they sought out only someone who they thought would be the most likely mighty warrior. And so they come to Jephthah. And the fact that he's recruited seemingly 
without any, any revelation, any calling from the Lord, is one of the things that makes him unusual. A, a second thing that makes Jephthah unusual was that he was apparently the first of the judges to serve as a ruler or, or kind of a regional king over the people of Gilead. So what happened was that Jephthah used this opportunity of his brother's distress to, in essence, take revenge on them. Now, our story begins in chapter 11, verse 1, but if you go back and look at the very end of chapter 10, this is where the Ammonites have been kind of gathering and messing with the, the people of Gilead for about 18 years. And what, what do the leaders of Gilead say? They say, who's going to go out and fight for us and be our head? Who's going to, who's going to lead us? And so they're thinking about this in advance. They're thinking, we don't only need a military leader. Let's find someone to be a peacetime leader as well. Let's find someone to be a civil leader. But that's not how Jephthah's brothers approach him, right? Because the very first offer that they make him uh, in verses 4, 5, and 6 is to say, won't you come and lead us in battle and then go home? And Jephthah says, I want more out of this. If I'm going to come and lead you in battle, I want to be your ruler. I want to be your head. The word in Hebrew actually means first. I want to be your first. I want to be the one in charge. And this is where the revenge part comes in, because whereas they had disinherited him years before, now Jephthah would live in their land as its ruler. And where they had taken away his share of the inheritance from him, now Jephthah would own everything that was theirs. And where they were the elders of Gilead, Jephthah would now come in, usurp their power, and he would be the king. And while losing power and wealth seems like a fitting consequence for Jephthah's brothers, we see no evidence that any prior judge had used their calling or office for personal gain. So this is another way in which Jephthah was an unusual judge. So the third reason that Jephthah is an unusual judge is found in verses 12 through 28, which we didn't read earlier because it would have made our passage too long. And the third reason is that in verses 12 through 28, Jephthah, the mighty warrior, attempts diplomacy with the Ammonites uh, as a way to end the war. So, if you have a Bible, if you want to look at verses 12 through 28, you can see that Jephthah sends messengers and he goes through the entire history of Israel's time in the land. Then he makes the case that Israel didn't come in and seize the land from its original inhabitants. Rather, it was the Lord who promised that land to Israel and took it away from the ancestors of the Ammonites. He says in verse 28, if Israel has been living here for 300 years and you had a legitimate claim on the land, why haven't you taken it back before now? And so he's doing good diplomacy. He's saying, look, it wasn't us who came in and displaced your ancestors. It was the Lord who sovereignly gave us this place to live. This is our inheritance from him. If you have a problem, take it up with him. Uh, and we've been living here, by the way, for 300 years. 
And so why haven't you complained before now? Now, I'm not at all saying that diplomacy is bad. I think it's really, really wise of Jephthah to do this. As a matter of fact, diplomacy is generally a good thing, as my cousin Ray said about Richard Nixon's diplomacy with China 50 years ago. But diplomacy was unprecedented for the judges up to this time and is unprecedented, I'm sorry, unexpected for Jephthah, who first and foremost is characterized as a mighty warrior. Is this something that he did at the Lord's behest? We don't, we don't see that mentioned. Or is it something that he came up with on his own? Only he and the Lord know that. So what can we say to summarize the unusual aspects of Jephthah's time as judge and what does it mean for us today? Well, one, I think, is a reminder that seeking the Lord's will is critical, critical for any decision but how much more so in the case of delivering Israel from her enemies in Jephthah's time. Bringing it back into the, the current sphere, are there opportunities the Lord is giving you to ask for his guidance and direction? Are you seeking his will for big decisions or just moving forward on your own? Or are you avoiding God's will because you fear it may not coincide with your own will? You know, it is, it is hard to bring big decisions before the Lord because to, to come before the Lord means you can't come with clenched fists and say, Lord, this is what I want, give it to me. You have to come with open hands and say, Lord, this is what I desire. Would you give me what is best? If, if this particular thing is not what's best for me right now, would you give me the grace to let go of it, and to not be angry, and to not pout, but to trust that you are good and sovereign. A second thing that I think we can say is that vengeance feels good, and sometimes it almost feels right. We feel like we have a right to vengeance. When someone has wronged you in, in big ways or small ways, it can be really tempting to get even or to make them pay. And we don't only accomplish revenge through getting back um, what we feel is owed to us. Sometimes we get revenge in more subtle ways, by refusing to forgive, by hating someone else in our hearts, by gossiping about them with other people. To refuse to forgive or to rehearse the wrongs of other people uh, done to us through complaining or gossiping means that we don't really understand the forgiveness that we have with God through Christ. God didn't hold anything back in His work to forgive us and save us, not even His own Son, Jesus. Forgiving one another is a decision that you and I can only make because we've been forgiven of the much greater sins that we've committed against God. Think about that. I mean, Jesus talks about this in many different ways. There are, there are so many parables that ask the question, the, the pregnant question, if God has forgiven you of such a great debt, how can you hold a much smaller debt against your brother or sister? As a matter of fact, that's one of the, the ways that we challenge you uh, before you come to the Lord's table. From Scripture, we, we ask you to consider whether or not there is a brother or sister with whom you have uh, a disagreement and, and need to forgive that person. 
or need to be forgiven by that person? And why don't you go and do that and make peace with your brother or sister before you come and celebrate the fact that you have been forgiven by the Lord? I should say that forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation and restoration of relationship. Sometimes being reconciled and restored to someone take long, takes a long time, and at other times it doesn't happen at all. And it's not wise to happen. Someone who has sinned against you and is unrepentant may not be a safe person to be in relationship with, and so you may not be restored or reconciled to them. But in Christ, you can forgive them. Is there someone in your heart whom you need to forgive? I'll I'll tell you what happens because I struggle with unforgiveness myself. When when we withhold forgiveness from someone else, it becomes becomes a, a, a snare for me. And what I do is I rehearse in my mind over and over and over again why I'm right and this other person is wrong and why they should pay and why they're such a terrible person. And I even have these fantasies about ways that I would tell them off. I don't know if you do that as well. But when I do that, I'm in bondage because my greatest hope in that moment is not that this person would experience the joy of being forgiven, My greatest hope is that I would give this person what's coming to them. And that is not of the Lord. That's a trap that keeps you locked in sin and in hopelessness. This is another time when when if, if you struggle with that, the only thing you can do is bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to understand how much you love me. Help me to to grasp even a little bit what it means to be forgiven and to be embraced by you even though I continue to rebel against you. Brothers and sisters, Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that it's God's kindness toward us that's meant to lead to our repentance. He doesn't say, forgive someone else because it's the right thing to do. He says, forgive because you have been forgiven. As we rest in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus, we can freely offer that forgiveness to other people. Will you do that today? If you're having trouble, first ask the Lord to help you. But sometimes it also helps to ask another human being to help you as well, to talk things out, to pray with you, to hold you accountable for forgiving someone else. And I would encourage you to talk with me or with Pastor Kyle or with the elders or with anyone in leadership here, and we'll be happy to walk with you as you do that. So in conclusion, there's more to Jephthah's story uh, than we have time to get into in a single sermon. Actually, the story goes on for another chapter and a half. In the second half of chapter 11, Jephthah kills his daughter because of a superstitious promise he made to God. And I should say this, that Jephthah's promise was based on how he had been influenced by the false gods of the people who lived in the land and who he thought the God of the Bible was. It it was clearly sinful for Jephthah to have made that promise in the first place, and it was just as sinful for him to have carried it out. 
And then in the first half of chapter 12, Jephthah starts a conflict with the people of Ephraim, another one of the tribes of Israel. And that conflict seems to be one that is based largely on revenge uh, because of an ethnic slur that the men of Ephraim made against him and against the people of Gilead. Verse 6 of chapter 12 records that 42,000 Ephraimites were killed as, as a result of that Israelite civil war. And so Jephthah is also notorious for probably killing, probably being rather, the only judge to be responsible for killing more of his own people than the enemies of Israel. What we see happen during Jephthah's short six years as a judge is more of a gradual decline of Israel as a nation and more of their gradual movement away from the God whose people they were. If you have a a study Bible, you might see a little diagram in there that lists the, the cycle in Judges where the people worship false gods, they're given over to subjugation under uh, the people who follow those gods, they cry out for a deliverer, God delivers them. And then they repeat the cycle over and over and over again. And that, that's an accurate representation of what that cycle is like, but it's not the complete representation because that's only in two dimensions where they go around and around in the cycle. Actually, they're not just going around, it's more like a vortex, more like a tornado. They're going down and down and down every time they loop through that cycle. And so we see not only the judges in the book of Judges getting worse, we see the condition of the hearts of the people in Israel getting worse. And as Israel's situation deteriorates, we find them more and more in need of a faithful king who will lead them and a savior who will deliver them not only from their own unbelief uh, and spiritual infidelity, but from their hopelessness as well. And that king will be King David, who came on the scene about 150 years after the time of Jephthah. But even David was an imperfect representation of the ultimate king that the people of Israel needed and that we have today. And that perfect king is Jesus Christ. Jesus delivers us through his uh, sacrifice on the cross in ways that no human judge ever could. And he delivers us not only from physical enemies, but from spiritual enemies that would destroy us. More than that, though, he's the judge who didn't just deliver once and then die. He's the judge who delivered, died, rose again, and continues to deliver day and day and day after day. And that is the source of our joy that you and I live under the reign of this perfect king, this ultimate king, this king that Jephthah in a very dim way points us toward. And so let's give thanks to our Lord for his deliverance. Let's give thanks for our salvation, and let's turn to him now in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, We 
love you. Lord, we confess that we need you. We need you, Lord, more than we could ever ask or imagine. Our sin is deeper and worse than anything that we're capable of saying or admitting to. And yet, your grace is greater than we could ever ask or imagine as well. You are the God who delivers people who continue to sin against you. You are the God who loves us. You are the God who shows us deliverance and forgiveness. You are the God who shows us love. You are the God who takes the arms of a mother, the strong arms of a father, and puts them around us. And you say, I love you. Your sins are forgiven. There is nothing that could ever separate you from my love. Lord, how we long to rest in your strong embrace and to not fear that it will be taken away. Lord, give us the faith as your people to believe that this day. All this we ask in Jesus' name.